Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. This is an easy environment to preach in, so we'll be here till two. Hallelujah. Man, you got to love a church that laughs at that. Some of you started sneaking out, but the, uh, the rest of you laughed. Uh, real quick here, I did want to mention, uh, next Sunday is Mission Emphasis Sunday. Uh, we are going to start doing that in the fall and in the spring. We've always done it in the fall. Uh, I already have our speaker lined up for the spring. We're bringing a man from Indonesia. Uh, some of you remember the, the fellow that I was talking about I met there, and uh, we're going to fly him over here. And uh, he's going to bring the word. It's going to be wonderful. This time we have some very dear friends, Brad and Kim Campbell, that are going to be ministering. And uh, m- most, many of you know Brad and Kim. I was just on the phone with them uh, the other day. And so they're going to be coming in uh, for next week. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to bridge what Stacy Campbell talked about last week and what Brad and Kim are going to talk about next week. I get to do the bridge. Uh, Stacy. Uh, she had, her, her and her husband, interesting couple. Uh, they are world, world movers. Uh, they, they travel the globe constantly uh, and, you know, sometimes run into each other in airports. Uh, they, they really are a, a phenomenal couple. But one of the things that they carry is this idea of Christian activism. Now, even that phrase is kind of strange for our circles, uh, but they really are. They're, they're activists for Christian causes. And uh, I, was, I was really stirred by some of the things she said, but especially stirred, uh, we had dinner with her on Friday night, and there were a few things that she said that really uh, prompted some things in my heart. And, and those of you who were here last week, uh, at the end of the service, I made a comment. I, I quoted something. That Friday morning, that previous Friday morning, uh, you know how up on Facebook your previous feeds come up and it'll say memories. And up came this quote I had posted a number of years ago. And I just thought, ah, yeah, you know, rather than work on another one, I'll just repost that one. Anybody else do that? I'm, I'm a recycler, uh, I'm a re gifter. Uh, so I uh, reposted it. And then we had dinner with Stacy that night. And it really jarred me because it had to do with that quote. And it, it was a quote by E. Stanley Jones. Some of you are familiar with E. Stanley Jones's writings. Uh, he was a missionary statesman, wrote a lot of books. Uh, Jack Taylor, Papa Jack, that was very dear to this house. Uh, he used to sell a book by E. Stanley Jones, The Unshakable Kingdom. Uh, and then there was, I, I forget... The Unchangeable Man. It was about the kingdom and the king. And a phenomenal book. Well, I don't know if it was that book. Some, somewhere I got this quote from E. Stanley Jones. And this is what he said. And this is what I want to use to spring from this morning. He made this comment. He said, if the kingdom doesn't start with the individual, it never really starts. But if it doesn't end with society, it truly ends. There's a lot in that statement, but I believe that E. Stanley Jones is exactly right, that the kingdom of God is meant to start with the individual, that there is an individual application. We must be born again. We must have our own personal encounter with Jesus. God wants to change history one person at a time, but the outflow of that transformation, the outflow of those personal encounters should affect the culture at large. And if we don't have a vision for that, then we end up uh, truncating the gospel. We cut off the gospel impact. And so there, it's not either or. And, and a lot of, there, there are Christian movements that tend to camp out on one or the other. Uh, if you look at it, the cons- conservative as opposed to liberal, and, and I mean this both politically and theologically. There are, there are liberal theologians and conservative theologians, and although they don't have the same definition as conservatives and liberals theologically, they do tend to fall within the same lines. And so conservative theologians tend to always talk about righteousness, the need for personal transformation, personal responsibility, uh, and, and you know they talk about uh, the born-again experience, righteousness. 
Whereas liberal theologians will talk a lot about justice. And they'll talk about the, the responsibility of the corporate group, the, lar- the, the responsibility of the culture, the responsibility even of companies and nations to the individuals that live within their, their borders. And so you have this, this juxtaposition. You have the conservative who says it's all about the individual. And then you have the liberal who says it's all about the group. The, the, uh, the, the conservative will say, no, it's about the responsibility of the individual and protect the group from the error of the individual. Now, you see, when I begin to talk like that, all of a sudden, we're starting to get into some political positions, aren't we? Because even liberal and conservative politics begin to fall along those lines. And so just before some of you get nervous, like, oh man, Dave's going to get into politics this morning. Maybe. But uh, just before you get real nervous, uh, there's there's a necessity of both of these. And that's exactly what E. Stanley Jones was saying. Now, let me just say, as a a, uh, uh, side issue, liberalism and leftism are not the same. Okay, leftism makes no room for Christianity, no room for God, and it is a demonic philosophy. Okay, I'll I'll state that unabashedly. It is uh, the leftist countries persecute and try to crush the church. I'm not talking about leftism. I'm talking about liberalism. I'm talking about the difference between people politically saying that the difference between those two movements is the, is the role of government. The liberal would say the role of government is larger than the conservative. Conservatives say, no, we need small government. The liberal said, no, we need a bigger government. And there's debate about that, and you can fall within the parameters of Scripture and have that debate. I'm not talking about leftism, okay? That's a whole other conversation. But when we talk about theology and even politics, there's this idea of the conservative, uh, the, the, uh, the conservative Christianity, there's a tendency for us to just talk about the responsibility of the individual and the rights of the group. And so we talk about protecting the group from the error of the individual. And so Within those parameters, we're talking about let's get people saved. Let's get them right with God and beginning to live righteously. So the emphasis is righteousness, right living, okay? Over here, it's about the rights, the rights of the individual and the responsibility of the group. And so you begin to talk not so much about righteousness, but about justice. And biblical justice is simply corporate righteousness, Okay, When we talk about biblical justice, it's the group acting righteously. It's just laws, righteous laws. And so just, just so we understand one another, you can't have justice if you're enacting unrighteous laws. If your laws are protecting unrighteousness, that's not justice. Now, there will be people that will tell you, no, that's, and they'll separate the sacred from the secular, and they'll say, I know that this is wrong as a believer individually, but when we talk about cultural laws, then we've got to side with these other things. And that is an unbiblical stance, and it'll have bad fruit, okay? But so when we're talking about justice, we're talking about corporate righteousness, and there is a need for that. And so what E. Stanley Jones was saying is, it starts with the individual conversion. We've got to get saved. And if we skip that, then all we are doing is we're trying to fight societal ills without dealing with the real root of it, and that is Individuals who are not right with God and therefore they're bent towards evil like the rest of us are without Jesus, okay? And so, so it has to start here. But what E. Stanley Jones is saying, it has to end there. That we need to have a burden for wider society. We need to have a burden to see the culture shift. We need to have a burden to see the disenfranchised and the oppressed and the broken taken care of. And if we, out of some political or theological stance, can look over here with cold-heartedness and say, well, if they would just get saved, they'd be better off, then shame on us. 
Our heart needs to be tenderized towards them. And so, and I'm going to make a confession here this morning. I remember when Stacy's husband, Wesley, came. This was many, many years ago. I'm not going to tell you how many because I'm ashamed of what, what, what I thought until I heard him preach. Well, it was about probably, what, John, was it 12 years ago, I think? 2005? Oh, it was longer ago than I thought. Hallelujah. I can distance myself because I was the pastor of this church, and I remember having this thought. I thought about, because he, he was raising money for starving children and orphans, and I had always had this unconfronted, unconscious thought within my heart. And as he was talking, that thing reared its head, and I had to slap it around and realize I'm wrong. You ever been there? And this was the thought. I am concerned with getting people to heaven and to, to pour money into feeding children was not where my heart was. I wasn't against that, but I just remember he was talking, and I'm like, hey, man, I'm about evangelism, evangelizing the lost. And this was, I know, isn't that horrible? It, 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 it is horrible that I felt that. It, it's horrible because Jesus cares about those children. And this was the thought that entered my mind. The God I serve is concerned about children who don't know him going to bed with food in their belly. His heart is moved with compassion. His heart is hurt when little children have hunger pangs and they're, they're wondering where their next meal is going to come from. He's not merely concerned with getting them to heaven. That's the ultimate because God forbid they should live their life with a full belly but spend eternity in hell. But the fact is he really does care about these kids having food to eat and shelter and being protected. And now we get into societal ills and what can we do to change culture? And here's the deal. Both of those are gospel values. Both of those our kingdom values, and we need to merge them. Let no man separate what God has joined together. That God is concerned with both righteousness and justice, and, the and, and there was a divide within Christendom. Back, uh, there was higher, Christ higher, higher criticism uh, back in the early 1900s over in Europe, the intellectuals, especially in Germany, the intellectual theologians began to get into higher criticism and undermine their, their belief in the word of God. And so it, Christianity was reduced to a social movement. They abandoned individual conversion. Sin was not an individual issue that people needed to be redeemed from. People were you know, born pretty good people. They just needed to be steered a little bit. And really the problem, sin was a corporate issue, was a societal problem, and we need to deal with it at that level through politics and preaching on justice issues. But the real problem was not the nature of man. And so there was a knee-jerk reaction on this side of the pond in the United States and in Britain. There was a book, a set of books, rather, uh, written called The Fundamentals. And out of that, people who adhered, had adhered to that belief system began to be called fundamentalists. That's where that, that came from. But the problem was, it was an overreaction, and so what we did is we divorced ourselves from social issues, from cultural issues, and we relegated ourselves only to spiritual issues. And in so doing, what we did is we created a divide between the sacred and the secular. And God never intended that. The sacred is not for preachers. Well, that, that's for those guys that you know, have their job at a church, and the rest of us, we have secular things. And then we come in and we plug in on Sunday, here's some, some sacred things, but it really is irrelevant to the rest of our life. That's not, that's not God's intention. All of life is sacred when we get saved. And every aspect of our life is to come under the lordship of Jesus, and he calls the shots, and the word of God has application to every, abs every facet of society in our personal lives. 
And so we can ask the Lord, God, give me wisdom on how to have a good marriage, how to raise my kids, how to operate in finances. How uh, Scripture says he gave us the power to create wealth. I want in on that. I want to understand those things. I want to know how to be a good boss and a good employee. And, and I want to know how that the kingdom can be expressed through my life. And in so doing, it can change the culture. But we had this sacred, secular divide. And a real sign of that happens is when you begin to talk to people about what they're going through, maybe they're facing some challenges at the, at, on the job and you begin to t- quote scripture to them and they say, yeah, yeah, yeah I, yeah, I know about that, but I'm dealing with real problems. And what they are communicating to you is that the Bible is irrelevant to my everyday life. That's for church, but I'm in the real world. And I'm here to tell you that all this world belongs to Jesus. And he wants it back. He wants to exert his lordship over every facet of society. And you are the vehicle through which he wants to do it. So let's look at the Great Commission this morning. So this is how I'm going to get into what Kim and uh, Brad and Kim are going to be talking about next week. Uh, There are two passages in Scripture that we consider... The, uh, what we call the Great Commission, and uh, that is Mark, let me turn there, Mark 16, let's read that one first, even though the other one is in Matthew, and Matthew comes before Mark, because the one in Matthew is the one I want to focus on this morning. Look at verse 14 of Mark 16. Afterward, now this is, Jesus has been crucified in the grave three days, resurrected. He spent 50 day, or 40 days with his disciples. Now he's ready to ascend. He's, gonna, he's talking with, his, with the boys. And it says, afterward, he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at table. That's interesting, at table, not the table, but at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Now, Marx is a more condensed treatment of, it's just kind of condensing all that happened very closely together. So verse 15, and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved and whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands and drink deadly poison and it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. And so this is what is known as the great commission. So God had a dream. It's called his mission. He wanted to include you and I in that. So it's the co-mission. He says, hey, I, I want you in on my mission. So we have, we're in, there's the co-mission that we do with God. And there, you have a calling within the co-mission. It's called your sub-mission. We're dividing up the great co-mission into slices. Following me? And so you look at Paul. We just read where it says, and they will baptize them. And, and uh, Matthew reiterates that as well. Part of the Great Commission is going into all the world baptizing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he said, yeah, I'm not called to baptize. I remember reading that and like, er, wait a minute. Who does Paul think he is excusing himself from what Jesus commanded us to do? The only conclusion I can come to is that Jesus gave the great commission to the church and we all have a piece of that commission. And when you understand your sub-mission under the co-mission, then things really begin to cook because you realize what you were created for and what you're to do and you can be like Jesus who told his disciples. Remember when he was with the woman at the well and they went off to get some food and they come back and they had a bag of burgers and they said, Jesus, we brought lunch. And he looked at them because he'd been spending time leading this lady to the Lord. He said, I have food you know not of. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me. What he's saying is it feeds me to do God's will. When you are doing what God's called you to do, it feeds you. It's like you're jazzed about it. You come Now, that's not to say it's always glorious. There's hardship in it. But there's something about that that feeds your inner man. And it's like I was made for this. I'm called to preach. 
And I'll, I can come to church discouraged and I'll preach myself happy by the end. Um, there's, there's something about doing what we were called to do. So you need to know your submission under the Great Commission. And Paul said, I'm not called to baptize. That's not my slice of the Great Commission. His slice was apostolic ministry, but the church was given the Great Commission. But this one in Mark, the Great Commission, is very clearly a mandate to preach to individuals. It's very clear. Whoever, speaking of people, believes they shall be saved. But now let's look at the Great Commission in Matthew. God hides things in his word. He hides them for you, not from you. But you've got to be hungry enough to, to mind these things out. And so, you know, in the Gospels, you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke. you got John, who is, is uh, you know, his own Gospel. It was written considerably after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels. And often, if you... you study them together and you lay them together, the, the, the passages that line up, all of a sudden your eyes are open and you're going to see things you didn't usually see if you just reserve yourself to one book. It's just like when you talk to three people who saw some event, you're going to get a little perspective from one you didn't get from the other. And that's what we have here. Look at verse 16 of Matthew, the last chapter, verse, chapter 28, verse 16. He says, now the 11 disciples went, disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him and worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, and now this is the famous passage, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's a little different spin on what Matthew said. So you got to put them together and you realize that Jesus, there is an individual mandate and a corporate mandate in the gospel. That we're not just to disciple individuals, we're to disciple all nations. When Jesus returns, he's going to divide the nations between the sheep and goat nations. There are going to be some nations that are followers of Jesus. Some nations. doesn't mean that everybody in that nation is uh, born again. That, that'd be awesome. Let's believe for that. But the fact is there are going to be nations that are considered by our Lord as sheep nations. So there's a whole lot in here, but this is the one I want to focus on this morning. This mandate that Matthew uh, gives to us. Now, th there's, there's four alls. There's all authority, all nations, all I have commanded, and all ways. He said, Go in, he said I've been given all authority. Now, I'll hear, I'll hear believers say, we, we, we have all authority. It's not what the Bible says. Jesus has all authority. And he delegates portions of that to you and I. Now this is a whole other subject we can get into. We've, I've taught on this before. But the fact is, you can grow your authority. Power and authority are two different things. Jesus did tell them, all authority has been given to me, but don't go out and do anything until you've been endued with power. There's a difference between power and authority. They're... they're explicitly different in the Greek language. Authority is exousia. And it is, if you think of the word authority, the root word is author. Related words are authorization. So the idea is this. Only God has resident authority. Only God has all authority because he is the author. He created it. He's in charge of it. And so what he does is he delegates portions to man, and we know from Scripture he also delegates portions to spiritual beings. So God is a king who, who governs through delegates, and we know that's true in the spiritual realm and in the physical realm. And so God extends authority to his people. And not all people have the same level of authority, and not all people have the same level of power. We recognize that. When we look around, we see there's people that pray for people, and it's like, whoa, he's packing... A high caliber of power. 
or she's, that woman, when she steps in and she speaks, there's authority on her life. And we can recognize the difference, but often we don't think about that. Now, this is, we, we don't have time to get into this, but let me just throw this out to you for your further pursuit. The fact is, there's a way to grow your power and grow authority, and you should desire to do so. That is not a, that's not some a side issue, that's not a, a, a selfish thing, that is a godly thing. I want more authority because I want God to use my life. But you grow in authority and you grow in power in different ways. Power, you, you grow in power. Jesus said, tarry or wait on me. Tarry, seek God until you're endued with power. And so as we seek the Lord, we can grow in power. And there is the principle of if you're faithful with little, you'll be given much. But if you want more power in your life, you spend more time with God. And in, through intimacy with him, God will delegate more power to your life. And you will learn to use the power of God. And the power of God is the ability to do with God what you couldn't do without him. Okay? These are the 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 gifts. Those are power gifts. Healing, words of knowledge, words of wisdom. It's the ability, when the power of God comes on you, you can do things that you couldn't do before he came on you. And if he lifts off you, you're not flowing in those things, okay? That's power. Authority is authorization. It's permission from heaven to govern in certain spheres and realms. Every one of us are born with authority. Psalm chapter eight is very clear. God delegated the earth to man. You have a level of authority by right, by birth. You can exercise it or you can fail to, but you will answer for what happens in your sphere of influence. Fathers have authority. Mothers have authority. We have authority over our home. We have authority on the job. Uh, but there, there's such a thing as growing in authority. There's, there's such a thing as promotional authority. So there's authority that is given to us because we're human. There's authority that is given to us by calling. So different callings demand different authority. But then there's also this element covered in scripture that you could call promotional authority. If you look in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is alluding to this principle and he tells us how to grow in authority. Paul says, I don't boast about work, I'm not gonna boast about work done in another man's, I think the NAS, I think it is, refers to it as field, someone else's field. And there's two Greek words Paul uses in that passage. There's metron, and, uh, and then the other one is kanon, where we get the word canon, of the canon of scripture. And so it's talking about allocations or authority to be used in a sphere, okay? And so Paul says, I am going to be, he said, I long to preach the gospel beyond you. He said, I'm not gonna try to, try to, do something in another man's sphere of influence. So we need to have an awareness. Uh, I, I was having a conversation with one of my sons, and my youngest son, and he was talking, we were talking about, you know, I've preached in Amish churches, I've preached in Catholic churches, I've preached in Baptist churches. Uh, I, and I, I've pulled up in a, in a car as they're pulling up in their buggies, and I thought, oh, I better take my tie off. This is awkward. And, uh, you know, the, the women sat on one side, and there was a room, and then there was a room on the other side, and then I was standing at the corner, so you address the men and the women, and, and I've preached in, you know, wild, charismatic churches. I've, I've preached in churches that make Heartland look tame. I've preached in all kinds of churches. And I was having this conversation with my son. I, don't, I wouldn't ever go into a church that doesn't believe in the gifts and roll out a message on the gifts of the Spirit. That would be a violation of that pastor and his authority. I am not gonna answer for his calling, but I am called to come into that space under his authority. And that's a very, very serious thing. And regardless of... There, are, there may be things that I understand about the word of God that he doesn't yet have light on, but if he is adamantly against that, that would be a violation of authority and I would be operating in rebellion and I would cause problems in his field. And that would be sin. Because I don't, the only authority that I have in that church is the borrowed authority of that pastor who invited me in. Now, most people that have me in say, hey, preach anything you want. Those are the places I like to go. Uh, but there are times we go into places we need to honor the authority. 
And so Paul says, I'm not going to try to do something in another man's field. He said, but what I am going to do, he said, and this is first, 2 Corinthians 10. He said, I'm going I'm to pour into you guys, and as you grow, you'll place a greater demand on me, and then God will allow me to preach the gospel beyond you. What he's saying is this, that as we're faithful in the environment delegated to us, the people will grow, put a greater demand on us. This is true of your, your vocational responsibilities. It's true of being a father or a mother, and it's certainly true of being a pastor. As you invest in people and they grow, they put a greater demand on you. You've got to stay, you've got to keep, stay one foot ahead of them. You've got to keep on learning because you've got to have something to teach them and you will grow and you will actually outgrow the fence line that God has you in right now. And then he will extend your influence. So the way we grow in power is through waiting on the Lord and spending time with him. But the way we grow in authority is through faithfulness. It's not printing up cards and try, you know, beginning to toot our own horn and saying, this is who I am and you ought to have me in and all this stuff or, you know, uh, let, let the, 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 the voice of another man praise you. But you be faithful and the God who sees, he'll say, this one is faithful with little and I'm gonna extend because I can trust them with the authority of my kingdom to expand my kingdom and to steward it well. And so the path to greater authority and greater influence in human history is being faithful with what you have now. And the God who sees will ultimately promote you. But Je So Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. All authority is not given to us. We are under authority, and he will delegate authority to us. That's why when we talk about prophecy, I am a continuist. I believe in the gifts of the Spirit today. I believe in prophecy, and I believe there's a place in God where we can shift from petition to proclamation, that we, we're asking him for things, and there's those, those times in worship and in prayer where we begin to declare things and things shift in the earth, but only when we're given the word of the Lord. I can't just willy-nilly go and proclaim things if that were the case, there'd be a 70 Chevelle SS sitting in my parking space out there. It'd be a resto mod, okay? It'd have, it'd have the new suspension underneath it. Be dropped a little, air ride. Anyways, I digress. But uh, it's, we can't just proclaim things because we're under authority. But when we're within our authority, we can release the word of the Lord and things will move because God operates through delegated authority. God is continually operating through his delegates. His, God isn't directly coming down here and doing things. It's, it's that thing of we're wringing our hands. God, why don't you do something? And God's looking at us and saying, why don't you do something? I told you in my word. I've got something cooking in my heart. I'm not going to roll it out. But I got something cooking in my heart that when Stacy Campbell was preaching, I, I'm about ready to just start wailing on the front row and just fall over into a puddle of tears. And I said, Lord, is she going to give me a word about this? And then I told him, I said, Lord, I don't need a word. I've already got your word on this. There's this need that we need to be the answer to. And we'll talk about it later. But the, the, the word, to, I know, isn't that mean? So come back for more. So uh, there, we, need the, we need to uh, see in God's word and then we have the authority to do things. But we don't just carry all authority and we can just declare things. That is a misunderstanding of this verse. All authority is given to him. He's the only one that has all authority, but he delegates portions to us. And there can be temporary authority, jurisdiction that God will drop on you. I know, I'm gonna be going back to Columbia in a few weeks. And I know that I have authority in Colombia because God sent me there. He told me, I'm sending you into Latin America. And so I'm going to go under that authority. But I still come under the authority of the pastors that are, that are there. I have authority as a father of my house. But I don't go into your house. I'm a, I'm a dad and start bossing your kids around. And by the way, we're going to move this furniture because I, I have authority as a father. Not in your house, I don't. And there are people who think that way in ministry. Oh, I'm an apostle, or I'm a pastor. Well, that's, that's great, I, and that's wonderful. I, I honor that, but understand the sphere in which that's true. I had a guy come and talk to me, and he said, there's only two apostles in Iowa, me and another guy, and what he was insinuating is we should come under him. 
And I thought, wow, you don't even know me. I might be a flake. Do you really want to be associated with me? You know? But he had a misunderstanding of what authority is. And so we need to understand, all authority has been given to Jesus. Now, this is an allusion to what we talked about earlier, that Jesus stripped the authority of the principalities and powers in heavenly realms. We, don't see, we see Jesus casting out demons, but we don't see him addressing principalities and powers in his earthly ministry. Why? Because he was going to do that at the cross. And he stripped them and openly exposed them to shame, according to Colossians. I want to say it's 3, 9, and 10, and 15. He talks about stripping them and, and humiliating them. And now, at the resurrection, he said, all authority now resides with me. The authority God delegated to those rogue princes has been stripped and it resides with me. And that's why he says, now, the nations they were once over, those principalities that once were delegated nations, they've been stripped of that. So now, go into these nations and preach the gospel and see the kingdom of God begin to take root. And in this passage, he says, go into all nations. Preach, disciple nations. The Greek word there is ethne, e T-H-E-N-E, I believe, ethne. It comes from a family of words, ethos, ethics, ethnicity. So there's this family of words that are kind of orbiting around this word ethne, and what it means, it means a distinct people group, that they have a shared ancestry or shared customs, shared ethics, a shared culture. And so... Here's, here's what we need to catch this morning. Mark is telling us, go into all the world, preach the gospel to an individual so that we can see the character of Christ begin to emerge in that individual's life. And that is the expression of the kingdom. We've got a maturity. The character of Christ is in this person. But Matthew gives us a cultural mandate where he says, go in and preach the gospel to every ethne, every people group. And when we know that is when the kingdom of God is taking root, that it's a cultural transformation. The, the markings of Christ begin to emerge in the culture. One is character, one is culture. One is individual, one is corporate. And we have to have a mindset for this, and that's why God sends us into the world. Otherwise, he'd just take us to heaven. Okay, you're saved, go to heaven. Now, we're going to receive communion in a minute. So I'm going, to, I'm going to skip over some things and let me land it here. One of the problems in the American church, this was another thing that uh, Stacy Campbell, was, she was talking about, she's part of this council in Jerusalem where these global leaders along with some Messianic Jews are meeting and they're having this fascinating discussion. She said, I don't know how I got invited to the table, but she said they're discussing what do we do with the Jewish people that are coming to Christ, and is it important that they retain their Jewishness? How do we disciple them? And they're asking these questions, which is the flip of this original council in Jerusalem. What do we do with the Gentiles coming to Jesus? What do we require of them? But now we have a largely Gentile church, and they're wrestling through what do we do with our Jewish brothers and sisters that are coming to Jesus en masse? Do we need to help them guard their Jewishness? Because Jesus' great dream in Ephesians chapter 3 is that, or chapter 2, that Jew and Gentile would become one new man. And you know, the Puritans believe that that passage in Ephesians was a prophetic word about a coming church. It wasn't just Paul writing about what was happening. They saw it as prophetic that there was a coming revival that Jew and Gentile would come together and make the one new man. And, and okay, I'm, we're getting into all kinds of things. I'm just going to throw out a bunch. You chase it down on your own. But Jesus, when he tells us about his return, there are two requirements to his return. This gospel of the kingdom must be preached to every, what's the word? Nation, ethne. To every ethnic group, they, every, every unique people group with their own culture, their own language, we need to penetrate that culture with the gospel. And we, for the first time in history, we can see the end of this thing. It's insight that there are, there are ministries targeted at every unreached group, and we could, we could close this gap. But there's one other 
requirement, and that is, he said, when you say, and he was speaking to the Jewish leaders, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When the Jewish people receive their Messiah, and so there's this requirement for the church and this requirement for the Jews. And we're going to pray for Israel in a moment. These two requirements, when they are met, Jesus can come back. He's going to crack the eastern sky and come and sit on a throne in Jerusalem. And he's going to rule from that place. And so we talked about this, this council she was on, and it was really interesting and so we got into this discussion, and it's fascinating to me because Western Christianity, Americans, we derive most of our theology. When we talk about what is, what is, the, what is salvation in the, the mandate, we look at Galatians and Romans, justification for the individual. And where you start theologically will have a controlling effect on where you end. Your little rocket, if you start at the fall, you end up, the ultimate is salvation. Well, the problem is the fall, and so the solution is salvation. Jesus is a savior. If we can just get people to say the sinner's prayer, we've done our job. But it's because we've started at the wrong place. Our mindset, our, our frame of reference must not start at the fall. It has to go back Further, So some people say, well, yeah, we got to start with creation, that God as creator. And where do we end up? God managing creation, and we're helping him do so. And it gives us a bigger picture. I would argue that we need to derive our frame of reference from the book of Ephesians that starts way back in the eternal heart of God as father, a father who longed for many sons, the king who wanted a family, and when we have that reference point in eternity past, that is the, that's, that's going to give us the trajectory that will encompass all that God wants. And so God wants to re-inherit all the nations. He, he really does care about his creation. He really does care about society and cultures functioning well. I heard a missionary story this week. It was fascinating to me. There was this group. I don't even know the nation. I didn't catch it, and I didn't have time to rewind the podcast. But they were talking about this, this uh, group in some foreign country, and they would plant their corn crops, and year after year they would only get a tiny harvest because the rats would descend upon their harvest and consume all the corn. And when the missionary talk to them about that. Why don't you do something? Well, that's just the way it is. That's, that's just how life works. We're, we're a victim of this, and their, their belief system forced them to kind of resign themselves to living in this poverty state and subjecting themselves to this infestation of rats. And so what he did brilliantly as a missionary, he said, let me show you something in the Word. Way back in Genesis, God says, you have dominion over the animals. You have dominion over the earth. God has delegated it to you, and so you can do something about this. And he trained them to begin to farm differently and deal with the rats, and they began to have abundant harvests. Now you and I think, really? We're sending missionaries to the foreign field and they're teaching that? Yeah, and it changed their lives. And I would tell you that that is an expression of the kingdom. God's kingdom has an application to all of life and he is at war against poverty and sickness and abuse and dysfunction and he has the answer for it all. And we have a responsibility to mine it out. Now each one of us have a different mandate and a different responsibility, but I'm telling you, God wants you to be the answer in your little sphere of influence or your big sphere of influence, whatever that is, that you bring kingdom answers. And that when you bump into dysfunctional situations, it is your obligation to bring God's answer lovingly to that situation so that they can be elevated. Wherever the gospel goes, man's, man's situation is elevated and changed. And that is the story of history. When I posted that last week on Facebook, uh, got in a conversation 
uh, guy I went to Bible school with, he, he, he asked some interesting questions. He said, he said I, you know, that's an interesting quote. He said, but I'm not sure I really agree that there's a cultural mandate. He said, I think we're just supposed to lead people to the Lord. And he, the way he asked the question was very, very insightful, and it kind of put me back on my heels. And I wrote him, I said, hey, I think not only is your, that a good question, it's an essential one, because we can't afford to just parrot Christian assumptions without going back to the Word and say, is this really valid? And I'm more convinced than ever that it is. And this is one of the things he said. He said that by that standard, the, the church has failed in the West. He said, really, it's failed all through history. And I would propose to you that's not true. It was the gospel that tamed the Norsemen. The berserkers, known as, they were called berserkers. They would take this, this drug, they were called Vikings, my heritage, the, uh, yeah, not the Minnesota Vikings, but the Vikings, and uh, did you feel that? Hallelujah. It, uh, the, they, the, it tamed them and converted them. They were, they were bloodthirsty plunderers, and it was the gospel coming to them that tamed their culture. We see that all down through history. The gospel changes society. But you and I need a frame of reference for that because if we are those who buy into this truncated half gospel that is simply the gospel of salvation and we just have, our only goal is to get people to say a sinner's prayer and let's move on, then we end up, the fruit of that theology is actually what we're experiencing as a nation right now. It's because as a church, we've abdicated many things. And we've said, no, the only responsible we have is for spiritual things. And God would say, yeah, you're right, because everything's spiritual. And we need to take responsibility. Some of you need to start praying about running for school board. We need godly people on the school board. Some of you need to start praying about running for political office. Some of you need to get involved in uh, different uh, efforts throughout the community that are solving the ills because you and I have the wisdom of God. Not that we're smarter than other people, but we have access to the wisdom of God. And when we abdicate all that, what we do is we, we delegate that to people who don't have the mind of Christ. And then we wonder why society's going to hell in a handbasket. There is a cultural mandate to us as believers. Amen? Amen. All right. We're going to receive communion here this morning. Um, I forgot to bring up my communion. John or Adam, would one of you get? Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Let's go ahead. If you don't, if you don't have a communion element, just raise your hand and we'll bring you one. But I'm going to ask you, go ahead and stand. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And uh, we're going to receive communion. This is, this is not just, this is not mere symbolism, okay? This is not merely a symbol of the body and blood of the Lord. This is a prophetic act. The, the difference is this. Symbolism, they just remind us and they, it's symbolic. A prophetic act literally enacts a spiritual reality. Jesus, on the night he was taken, Paul writes that he took the bread and he said, this is my body for you, and he broke it. And he, he encouraged his disciples, he said, do this in remembrance of me whenever you do it. It's to cause us to pause and remember the sacrifice he made. There's something about the bread. It represents his body. Jesus became a physical human being that lived among the physical earth, the dirt, and the grime, and the sweat of this world. And the message is this. God is concerned about this world. There was an ancient heresy called Gnosticism 
that said God is only concerned about spiritual things. Physical things are evil. And the problem in American Christianity, dividing the sacred and the secular, is in one sense an expression of that heresy. I'm telling you, God is concerned about the physical world, your physical body. He's concerned about little babies going to, going to bed feeling safe because their mom and dad aren't fighting anymore. He's concerned about them feeling safe because that porn addiction their uncle was wrestling with has been, they've been delivered so he's no longer be a predator that they feel uncomfortable around. God's concerned about the physical and that's what this body represents. He took on human flesh and when you are a believer, your physical body is made holy. Everything about you becomes sacred and you become a living, breathing, walking expression of his kingdom. So Jesus, we thank you for your body. We thank you that you left the glories of heaven to take on the limitations of human flesh. Lord, we receive your body right now. I think it's very important that we realize that Jesus taking on humanity was not a temporary thing. It's not like for 33 years he zipped on an earth suit, now he jettisoned that thing. Paul's very clear in writing Timothy. There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. God has eternally wed himself to human nature. Jesus, the, the, the second person of the Godhead, is eternally human. So he, he can relate with our struggles. He can have compassion. There's a man that sits at the right hand of the Father, a perfect man named Jesus. It says that then Jesus took the cup and he said to his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And he said, we're proclaiming that whenever we receive it. There's a proclamation of the gospel that goes on when we do this. We're proclaiming it to one another. We're proclaiming it to our own hearts, but we're also proclaiming it to the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. Ephesians 3 says that the church, through the church, the wisdom of God is made manifest to the principalities and powers. I was down in Atoma preaching last night. I told them that the church is, your life is the Sunday school that God requires the devil to attend. He grabs him by the back of the neck and said, watch this. Watch my kids stay faithful to me through thick and thin. And we're proclaiming his death this morning. We're proclaiming our faithfulness, our fidelity to him and his fidelity to us. Let's receive it. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com slash give.